We are heading into the end of the year. Today is Wednesday, December the 28th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. New EU Battery Regulations for Manufacturers and Tech Giants The EU, which is the European Union, is getting serious about making batteries as green as possible. EU lawmakers have agreed on a new set of rules aiming to make batteries in the EU more sustainable and reusable. The regulations will cover the entire battery life cycle from the extraction of materials and industrial production to disposal. They will apply to all types of batteries sold in the EU, including portable batteries used in electronic devices, industrial batteries, SLI batteries used in automotive applications, as well as batteries used in two-wheelers and EVs. The green requirements of the newly agreed rules set an impressive milestone for the Union as part of its goals to advance its energy transition and increase its competitiveness in the sector. They might, however, present a series of challenges to manufacturers, especially in the consumer electronics and automotive industries. Under the new rules, all companies selling batteries in the EU market must implement a due diligence policy, addressing the social and environmental risk linked to the sourcing, processing, and trading of raw materials. They will also need to use a set percentage of recycled materials, 16% cobalt, 85% lead, 6% lithium, and 6% nickel. In addition, the EU has set ambitious collection targets to secure a steady stream of recycled materials. In the case of electronic devices, the targets are set at 45% by 2023 and 73% by 2030. In the case of EVs, at 100%. These developments might prove especially challenging for global automotive manufacturers and battery producers as they would need to start preparing for the new requirements by carefully reviewing their supply chains, re-evaluating their operations, and moving into strategic partnerships with recyclers. Portable batteries and electronic devices, meanwhile, must be designed to allow consumers to easily remove and replace them. This threatens the current practices of major consumer electronics brands such as Apple and Samsung. The vast majority of smartphones and laptops currently on the market come with non-removable batteries, the argument being that this design enables the development of slimmer and more durable products. In cases of battery failure, consumers are directed to dedicated service stores where the repair or replacement is performed by a technician. The new battery rules, along with the EU right-to-repair legislation, would not only mean less manufacturer profits from servicing, but also the prospect 
that brands will have to rethink their product's overall design. The battery regulation is pending final approval by the Parliament and the Council, and if it passes, it will set a high green standard for the global battery market in the years to come. It would also impact the battery market in the United States. The use of batteries in consumer products continues to grow exponentially, with the proliferation of batteries and the miniaturization of portable products. Manufacturers have sought to increase battery operating times while reducing size and weight of the battery and the battery-powered product. This has led to battery chemistries that pack higher energy in smaller packages. High-energy chemistry batteries include lithium-ion, lithium-ion polymer, and lithium battery batteries that are thinner, smaller, and lighter weight and contain more energy than traditional rechargeable and non-rechargeable batteries. Although conventional battery chemistry such as lead acid pose fire and explosion hazards, the combination of high-energy volatile chemistry packed into a small volume requires special safeguards to minimize potential hazards. High-energy density batteries need enhanced safety systems and additional care when using and handling, both in or when removed from the product, and batteries must be properly tested with the product in its intended use and with the charger as a system. In the United States, we have the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, otherwise known as the CPSC. The staff participates in voluntary standard activities related to batteries in consumer products. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission recommends components and battery-powered products comply with applicable voluntary standards. New components and products that are not yet subject to voluntary standards be designed considering the best practices from similar voluntary standards. Battery-powered products be designed with system approach addressing thermal protection, charge and discharge protection, and use in product, including cells suitable for intended loads and conditions and manufactured with good quality control, battery packs with proper battery management systems, including charge control, short-circuit protection, and cell balancing, charges that comply with applicable voluntary standards and are suitable for product, End product systems, including cells, batteries, chargers, and products, are tested together for safe function and appropriate conditions. Looking at it from a macro point of view, the European Union is defining the battery specification standards to be used in product design based on percentage of recycled materials, whereas the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is defining battery performance goals in product design. From my point of view, this promotes new battery design alternatives. Let's talk about MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The engineers have designed a battery made from inexpensive, abundant materials that could provide low-cost backup storage for renewable energy sources, less expensive than lithium-ion battery technology. The new architecture uses aluminum and sulfur as its two electrode materials with a molten salt electrolyte in between. The new battery architecture is described in the journal Nature Paper, and in this case, the new materials in the battery using aluminum and sulfur has not yet been defined by the EU. Not knowing what new regulations may be added by the EU in battery design will impede progress 
in any new battery design alternatives. Specifying performance standards would be, in this case, much more practical. Form follows function. In the proposed EU regulation, function follows form. Russia has no immediate action on damaged Soyuz spacecraft. After working through the weekend to better characterize damage to its Soyuz spacecraft attached to the International Space Station, Russian specialists have decided to take no immediate action. In a lengthy statement published by Roscosmos, the Russian Space Corporation said it believed that a tiny piece of debris ruptured an external cooling loop that radiates heat from inside the Soyuz into space. Working with NASA on Sunday to operate the long Canadarm2 manipulator arm, Russian specialists were able to get a clear look at the damage area on the aft end of the Soyuz spacecraft. The area of the hole is about 0.8 millimeter across, which, although small, allowed all the coolant in the external loop to be dumped into space. More importantly, the visual inspection discovered no other notable damage to the Soyuz vehicle from the debris strike. The direct general of Roscosmos said working groups of specialists would spend about another week assessing the issue. A decision on future actions will be taken at this point. There are two options under consideration. Flying the three crew members back to Earth inside Soyuz MS-22 or autonomously flying the next Soyuz inline, which is the Soyuz MS-23, up to the station for the return flight. This Soyuz could be ready for a flight as early as February 19th. The crew of Soyuz MS-22, cosmonauts Sergei Prokopyev and Dmitry Patelin and NASA's Frank Rubio launched to the space station in September. They had been due to return to Earth in March before the dramatic coolant leak, which now has delayed two spacewalks on board and the International Space Station as astronauts work with ground controllers to assess the damage to the Soyuz. Without a functional external radiator, there are concerns about the interior of the Soyuz spacecraft overheating. This could damage sensitive flight computers, necessitating a manual re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Much of the work over the next week will likely be conducted to understand how the spacecraft's internal temperature will change once it departs from the space station. In reality, the Soyuz is a hardy spacecraft built to withstand several failures. Certainly, Russian officials would be keen to use the existing spacecraft to fly home, if at all possible. That is because there will be a substantial financial cost if the Soyuz MS-23 spacecraft, which was due to ferry three new passengers to the station in March, must be repurposed for this return flight. Because Rubio is one of the three crew members slated to fly home, NASA is also closely scrutinizing the data. To date, the agency has offered limited public comment on the issue, preferring to give Russian specialists time to work on the problem and make recommendations on next steps. For now, the biggest risk will come if there is a health emergency with Prokopyev, Patelin, or Rubio, or if there is some station issue that forces an emergency evacuation. At this time, it's not certain 
that the Soyuz MS-22 is a capable lifeboat. Back to the future. Pentax unveils plans to build a new range of film cameras. Yeah, you heard me. Film cameras, not digital cameras. Pentax just became every film shooter's favorite cameras company. The brand from Japan just announced in a video published on Ricoh's Imaging YouTube channel that they plan to release a full range of brand new film cameras. In the video, Rico Imaging Product Planner outlines what we film lovers have been living for nearly a decade now. Film is popular again, especially with young people. However, old film cameras are becoming harder to repair as parts become scarce and the people who repair them retire, taking their knowledge with them and consequently film camera prices have increased as has the cost of film itself. To address these concerns and to capitalize on what Rico sees as a business opportunity, Pentax has now launched an initiative to create not just one, but an entire range of new film cameras. In fact, Pentax provides a roadmap for the future of the Pentax film cameras. They will start with a compact camera with the intention that it will be affordable for young people. Pentax will examine a range of technologies with the aim of producing a high-end compact. Next will be an SLR camera, followed by a fully mechanical SLR. The full video elaborates on this information and takes great care to stress that the process will be difficult. Pentax even goes so far as to admit that they may totally fail to meet their goals. Only time will tell. My thoughts on the announcement? For me, this is totally unexpected news and welcome. Over the last few years, We've seen the discontinuation of the last lines of amazing film cameras. Nikon ceased production of their Prospect SLR, the Nikon F6, some time ago, and Canon left the market even earlier. Leica remains the only major camera company producing a truly high-quality film camera in the modern era with their Leica MA and MP. And they recently resumed production of their legendary Leica M6. Pentax's announcement, however, is exactly what we need. We don't need a film camera that costs $4,000 and up. We need a film camera that costs a couple hundred and maybe another that costs $500 and maybe a pro camera model at $1,000. This is what we need to bring new life to young people into this hobby to make film viable as a long-term medium. And it sounds like Pentax may be doing this. One of my early cameras was the Asahi Pentax SLR. The idea that a company like Ricoh Pentax would launch into making new film cameras with such enthusiasm is really a big deal. I'm very excited about the possibility of a new Pentax camera, and there's no doubt that Pentax has almost instantly become a special brand in my heart and mind. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, proposes a record $300 million fine for auto warranty robocalls. The government wants two California men to pay for those annoying robocalls about car warranties. The FCC on Wednesday proposed a $300 million fine against auto warranty robocall campaign the largest ever penalty proposed by the agency over unwanted calls. 
Roy Cox Jr. and Michael Aaron Jones were accused of running the scheme via their Sumco Panama company and other entities. More than 5 billion apparently illegal robocalls were made to more than half a billion phone numbers during a three-month period in 2021 using pre-recorded voice calls to press consumers to speak to a warranty specialist about extending or reinstating their cause warranty. A lawyer for Cox did not immediately comment, and a lawyer for Jones could not immediately be identified. The FCC Enforcement Bureau chief said, we will be relentless in pursuing the groups behind these schemes by limiting their access to U.S. communications network and holding them to account for their conduct. It is the latest government action targeting the robocall operation. In July, Ohio Attorney General sued Cox and Jones and others alleging they orchestrated an unlawful and complex robocall scheme, at times besieging consumers with more than 77 million robocalls a day to generate sale leads, often for fraudulent auto warranty extensions. Cox denied the allegations in the court filing. The FCC noted that under a Federal Trade Commission actions, both Jones and Cox are prohibited from making telemarketing calls. The only comment I can make on this is that the FCC is proposing a record $300 million fine. Why don't they impose a $300 million fine? And let these two guys take it to court, and if the court sustains the FCC ruling, so be it. But instead, the FCC is just proposing it. That sounds more like words and not action. Big tech laid off thousands, but governments, nonprofits, and small startups are hiring these people. These organizations hope to scoop up people let go by the likes of Meta and Amazon. It's their big chance to lure the top-tier talent. Remote work and competitive salaries, a streamlined hiring process, and they're all perks being offered to prospective tech workers from an unlikely employer, the U.S. government. Soaring Silicon Valley salaries, perks, and stocks have allowed big tech companies to lure the industry top employees for years while government jobs sat open. But as companies like Meta, Amazon, and Google have cut jobs to slow the hiring, government, nonprofit, and smaller companies are now seizing the moment and looking to catch the attention of out-of-work technologists. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is seeking tech workers to fill 1,000 jobs. They'll work on solving problems like modernizing benefits software and revamping medical appointment scheduling. Silicon Valley isn't the only place for tech innovation. The department's information technology office tweeted last month, big tech losses could be a boon to these employers. According to Charles Worthington, the VA's chief technology officer, there's this increased interest in public service. There's obviously new headwinds in the tech industry that are leaving more people needing a job. And then there's these great opportunities at the VA. Nearly 1,000 tech companies around the world have laid off more than 150,000 tech workers this year. According to layoffs.fyi, a site that tracks publicly reported job cuts in the industry, Meta cut 11,000 jobs and Amazon 10,000 in November. Smaller cuts at companies like Lyft, Snap, and Stripe have shown that uncertainty is widespread in the tech world. 
But tech jobs make up just a small slice of the U.S. economy. Tech workers are turning elsewhere for opportunities, and they're increasingly looking for jobs in nonprofits, smaller startups, and government. The jobs don't all come with access to swimming pools or flush stock options, but these employers hope they can woo the influx of talent now that there's less competition in the private sector and their stability could become a bigger selling point. People are taking this moment of uncertainty as a way to pause and reflect on what they've been doing and see if there's an opportunity for them to work on something different. Governments have seen more applications for in-house roles and more interest in government tech roles. As uncertainty grows amid declining tech stock values, more young people may consider the shift. The U.S. Digital Response, which has co-hosted a job fair in December, planned in response to the recent layoffs. Ten state and city governments from around the United States came to make their case to the prospective workers. The state of California is looking to hire nearly 2,500 tech workers. San Francisco is advertising government roles that requires only one day in the office per week. There's been a longer trend of more and more job seekers looking for impactful roles. A lot of organizations are still hiring and are getting a lot more applications. Nonprofits and governments are trying to become more competitive, and the VA is working to close the existing pay gap between its roles and the private sector by 60%. And for some employees, Making an impact and having a remote job might mean more than Silicon Valley's perks and plummeting company stock prices. Smaller startups or industries like retail and healthcare are also benefiting from the group of technologists let loose. It does create an amazing opportunity for companies in pretty much every industry to work with this amazing talent. Apple joined forces with Google and Mozilla for a big upgrade to Speedometer. Wait wait a minute. What is Speedometer? Speedometer is an application that tests a browser's web responsiveness by timing simulated user interactions. This benchmark simulates user actions for adding, completing, and removing to-do items. Each example implements the same to-do application in different ways. Many of these actions are used on the most popular websites in the world, such as Facebook and Twitter. The performance of these types of operations depend on the speed of the APIs, the JavaScript engine, style resolution, layout, and other technologies in the browser. Although user-driven actions like mouse movements and keyboard input cannot be accurately emulated in JavaScript, speedometer does its best to faithfully replay a typical workload within the demo applications to make the runtime long enough to measure with a limited precision, and it synchronously executes a large number of the operations, such as adding 100 to-do items. Modern browser engines execute some work asynchronously as an optimization strategy to reduce the runtime of synchronous operations while returning control back to JavaScript execution as soon as possible is worth pursuing, the runtime cost of such an asynchronous work should still be taken into a holistic measurement of web application performance. Speedometer approximates the runtime of this asynchronous work in the UI thread with a zero-second timer 
that is scheduled immediately after each execution of synchronous operations. Coming together for version 3 of the browser's benchmark, Google Chrome is the default browser on the best Android phones and is also a popular desktop web browser. It competes with Mozilla's Firefox, Microsoft Edge, Brave, and many other open-source alternatives in addition to the web browser found on Apple products, Safari. While each browser has its positives and negatives, developers rely on metrics like browser benchmarks to determine the area where particular offering shines. Speedometer is one such benchmark tool, and it was set up by Apple's WebKit team back in 2014, but it's only seen one major upgrade, and that was way back in 2018. Well, the WebKit team is now joining up with folks on the Chrome and Firefox sides to develop the next big iteration of benchmark service. Unsurprisingly, the new product is to be called Speedometer 3. It's not terribly common to encounter partnerships between these competing companies, but that's not to say that their interests can't align towards industry-wide improvements. In a tweet late last week, the WebKit team said this joint effort would make the benchmark itself better while also enhancing the browser performance for Apple users. Twitter accounts belonging to the Mozilla development team and Google Chrome also confirmed that development with the latter, saying that the collaboration will operate on a joint governance model with the goal of sharing each other's work, leading to a better performance for all. It should be noted that Google's Chrome surpassed Safari as the fastest browser on Speedometer in March of this year. The GitHub repository for Speedometer doesn't say much about the new 3.0 version, aside from the fact that it's in active development and is currently unstable. But developers are encouraged to keep checking the repository for updates on the forthcoming release. If you're interested in checking out a stable version of Speedometer, you can take a look at Speedometer 2.1, which was released in August of this year. However, I'm just asking a simple question. The three companies, Apple, Google, and Mozilla, are all upgrading Speedometer. Each also has a browser product that they themselves sell or they themselves offer. There is a vested interest with each of these companies. The optics is that there is a conflict of interest. There are other competing browser products, and I think that there are other features that are more important than speed itself alone. There are such issues as tracking and security of data. I think that's more important than speed. Having something that without security doesn't compute. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time to discuss IT, work, the IT professional, everything that might fit in here. And a week ago, I talked about the idea of one of the things that we as IT professionals, we have to bear these things in mind when we go into the industry. If we don't, we're going to be quite amazed and surprised. Oh, I thought IT was going to be just easy. All you got to do is sit there and punch a bunch of keys and, you know, and, and, and you just make everything work and it's all good and fine and dandy. No. I mean, yes, but no. 
all I, it, okay, so last week I talked about being ready to work long hours, and I related a story that was all about my working from, well, I got up at, you know, 530 in the morning or something like that on day one. We'll, we'll call it on on Wednesday. And I was not driving home. I, I hadn't received any sleep, nothing. It was pretty much just completely drained Thursday at 7 p.m. So, yeah, you know, you, you work the hours of a fireman. You were, you know, the fi- firemen have some of the worst uh, hours out there. If they're deployed to a fire, they've got to be out there and they have to put that fire out. And it may be a very, 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 very long day like IT professionals. So along with that, you as an IT professional, you have to sacrifice at times for your personal time. There are times when all of the computers are going to impose in upon that. And part of that, part of that is just a matter of there are deadlines that you have to make. There are situations where you're putting in it and you will have to make sure that everything is running. And, and you know, I, 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 I'm relating this and I feel like all of a sudden I, I'm sounding like I have this hero complex. And I, I don't. We just it, we have to be aware that if I have a major server down that runs the entire company. I'm doing an upgrade. I need to know how to back out of that upgrade. I need to know how to fix it and move forward. I need to figure out all of the different moving pieces, and I need to know this all in advance, or at least as much as I can plan and prepare for this as much as I can in advance. And then we move forward. And if something goes wrong in the middle of our upgrade that's done after hours, we may spend more hours working on it. So there there are definitely deadlines and pressures, and these pressures are far greater because it's not just impacting, you know, yourself. It's not just impacting maybe just one department. Sometimes these impact the entire company. So we have to be aware of this. We have to be prepared, and we have to take on this pressure. And throughout all of this, we also, as IT professionals, have other things that we may not have been expecting. For instance, I had some idea going into the IT profession that I would need to be a lifelong learner, and I am. I've been doing I've been in the industry for three decades now. And yes, I am constantly learning new things. There is so much that has happened since I've started in the industry. There are so many things that are no longer around. We don't deal in DOS anymore. I do some of the things, some uh, command line interfacing where, yes, you type in a command versus clicking here, click this box, click that box, click OK. And that goes back to my early days working with DOS. I have to be prepared to, for lack of a, this is the friendly version of the term hacking. I have to hack my way through different things. I have to be flexible and just look around and find ways to game the system, to make it do what I want it to do. And that did require some learning how to do that. 
I also had to learn how to go through and utilize Google on a different level than most people do. You know, most people, they want to go use Google. They type in the command or, you know, they type in you know whatever it is that they're searching for and they have to go through and they go, all right, maybe I need to change how I'm answering this. And let me search for this. Let me search for that. No, I mean, I can. I can just be lazy. But frequently, I have a lot of different things that I'm working on that will that I know already. I need to search for this, but not that. I need to include these, but not those. And you start going through and you change how you are searching for things. You're, the, there's a term that's been around for a long time, Google Foo. Your Google Foo has to be up to par. Now, you've got to be that lifelong learner. You've got to be able to do all of that. But one of the things that people forget is you also have to be a self-learner. You have to be able to pick these things up on your own. So many of these different things cannot be taught. They have to be brought into you through your own experience and through your own lens of life. And you have to be able to just pick this up and be constantly updating and aware. And these are just some of the things that people have to think about when they go into the IT industry. Again, long hours that might impose on your personal time. You need to be able to take that that high pressure and also do all of the learning that you have to on your own. Do I want to scare you off? No, I don't. We need more IT people. I want to encourage you, if you're capable of doing these things, then you might actually be ready for a job in IT. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has until tonight, midnight, December the 28th, to sign the Digital Fair Repair Act. The Digital Fair Repair Act, the first right-to-repair bill to entirely pass through a state legislature, is awaiting New York Governor Kathy Hochul's signature. But lobbying by the nation's largest technology interests seemed to have kept the bill parked on her desk for months, where it could remain until it dies on December the 28th. The final version of the bill received rare partisan support passing the State Assembly 147-2 to and the Senate 59-4. to The bill was delivered to the governor Friday, December the 16th, according to the New York State Senate bill tracker, though she's been considering it since late June. As written, the Digital Fair Repair Act would require the makers of digital electronic parts and equipment to make diagnostic and repair instructions and parts available to consumers and non-affiliated repair workers so long as those makers already provide them to their own technicians or authorized repair networks. The Digital Fair Repair Act and similar bills introduced in 41 other states this year aims to expand repair options for devices. Advocates say that lack of documentation and spare parts access plus software restrictions that thwart repairs outside companies' networks, limit consumer choice, raise ownership costs, and add to a growing e-waste stream. 
manufacturers and trade groups have counted that authorized serialized repairs are necessary to ensure a product quality, avoid injuries, and protect the intellectual property. Although the bill was passed by both the Assembly and Senate in June, the bill was only delivered to the governor Friday, December the 16th, according to New York Senate Bills Tracker. She has been considering it since late June. Signed bills become law. Veto bills do not. However, the governor's failure to sign or veto a bill within the 10-day period means that it becomes law automatically. You've been told by manufacturers and industry lobbyists that digital right-to-repair bills passed in New York State create new cybersecurity risks that would lead to hacks, data thefts, and other undesirable outcomes. There is no cyber risk in repair. These claims are simply not true, as the language of the bill makes clear. The Digital Fair Repair Act requires manufacturers that already provides repair information to their authorized repair providers to provide the same information to the owner of a covered device and independent repair providers they may wish to hire. Manufacturers are arguing that they should be free to share repair information with their business partners, but withhold that same information from the actual owner of the device or in the name of data privacy. That argument defies logic. In arguing against the bill, opponents also gloss over the inconvenient truth that many authorized repair providers have a poor track record of protecting customer information. OEM claims about the superiority of authorized over independent repair providers on matters of cybersecurity and data privacy are unsubstantiated. The Federal Trade Commission noted that there is no empirical evidence to suggest that independent repair shops are more or less likely than authorized repair shops to compromise or misuse customer data. The clock is ticking. We await New York Governor Kathy Hochul to sign the bill into law or veto the bill. If she just does nothing, it will become law, or it should become law. Right now, we're in a cold spell, very cold weather spell, and cold weather affects an electric car's range. Electric cars can lose lots of driving range in freezing temperatures. Recurrent, a startup that tracks battery health, studied how 13 electric models perform in the cold. EVs or electric vehicles can't drive as far in cold weather because heating their cabins consumes electricity. Drivers have always had to grapple with extra problems in colder months like icy roads, snowed-in cars, and dead batteries. Owners of electric vehicles face an extra challenge when temperatures drop and they get less driving range. The firm analyzed data from thousands of electric cars and determined the drop in range owners can expect between an optimal 70-degree day and when temperature are between 20 to 30 degrees. For some models, it was able to provide a verified winter range based on real-world driving in different environments. For others, it came up with an estimated figure. All the models recurrent studied experienced some range loss in cold temperatures. That's mainly because an electric car relies on its battery pack to heat its cabinet and passengers, using up energy that could go towards driving. Gas engines, on the other hand, 
create lots of heat as a byproduct. The chemical processes inside a battery also slow down in cold weather. But not all cars perform equally well. The Tesla Model Y and the Model X, for instance, experience only a 15% verified drop in range. For the Ford Mustang Mach-E and Volkswagen ID.4, it was 30%. That's quite a difference. Previous studies have come to similar conclusions about the impact of cold weather on EV range. In an analysis of 20 models, the Norwegian Automotive Association found that cold temperature dealt an 18.5% blow to range on average and stunted charging speeds. There are few ways to make living with an EV a little easier during the winter months. Recurrent says owners can use the preconditioning feature in their cars to warm up the cabin and battery before driving and while plugged in. Seat and wheel heaters can keep passengers warm without wasting excess energy heating the rest of the car's interior. In many parts of the country, we are currently experiencing weather temperatures below 20 to 30 degrees range in the study. EV owners will likely experience slower charging speeds and reduced range in winter. For many EV drivers, this will result in a noticeable reduction in the usual range of their electric car. And on top of this, many will find that their charging stopovers take longer. Charging speeds seem slower than before. As an electric car owner, it's likely you will have experience trying to fast charge during the winter and not receive as quick of a charging speed as the stated power of the charger. This is, in fact, a very common problem, and the reason for it is, first and foremost, it is important to remember that when it comes to EVs, the car is in charge, not the driver. A charger can always provide its stated power, but an EV decides how much power it will accept. Essentially, electric vehicles themselves regulate the charging process to protect the battery, and so the speed of charging varies throughout a charging session. We call this an electric car charging curve. During winter, there is one core reason for fast charging is slower than at any other time of the year, and that's battery temperature. The temperature of an EV battery greatly affects the charging speed, which often drops considerably below zero degrees. An EV battery has an ideal operating temperature, preferably around 20 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the car model, which can be difficult to achieve in winter. If the temperature is lower than this, it will affect both charging speed and range. This is because the electromechanical processes in the battery slow down as the temperature drops. Many people park their car outside or in an unheated garage, resulting in the battery temperature matching that of its surroundings. As a result, the EV must use a lot of energy to reheat the battery. As a rule, an EV battery won't reach the ideal operating temperature on a normal drive in minus degrees. So when you come to charge your vehicle, some of the power from the charger goes to heating the battery instead of charging it. Consequently, charging takes longer when you arrive at the charging station And after charging at a fast speed for a while, the battery will have reached operating temperature, which means the range should be better and you'll be able to fast charge at the expected speed next time.
Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty. <laughs> nice throw. I love a toss like that. That's <laughs> <great>. <laughs> what sure. I want to what I thought we might cover is how being a geek, being a nerd yeah. is so seldom an outdoor sport. Outdoors. Oh, you mean where it's cold or in the summer some, it's hot? Sometimes. Okay. No, but we we tend to sit indoors and, and you know, it, it could be the couch. It could be the basement. We're always sitting and, and, and staring at things. And really, do we get outdoors ever? And I'm, I'm thinking about this because we had a guy in yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, much to my uh, spouse's uh, relief, to Talk to us about ideas for adapting the look of the house, the yard, getting rid of the grandchild trees, all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm, yeah. And some of the stuff that came out crosses technology. You know, he was asking, do we want sprinklers added? Do we want to add wiring out to things? Are we going to do anything with lighting? Which way will it point? Do we need a generator added? How about a fountain? Do we want the geese out here? Wow. Okay. All right. And, and, you know, what kind of trees do you want? Geeks, nerds don't care what kind of trees they are. Just don't hit me with them. Big, huge, leafy thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, but wife, they, the wife wants, wants the things, the big, huge, bulb-like things that fall out. Oh, apples. She wants an apple tree. Yeah. Uh, not here. We got deer. <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and ponds are very good for geese. Mm -hmm, they, the geese mm -hmm. come and the ducks don't come back anymore. <laughs> All right. And bats, bats and birds, really good if you don't like mosquitoes, and we don't. So <laughs> there, there are things that are natural alternatives to tech. Yeah. There are things in tech we're going to have to consider. But the whole idea of making the optics of the house the yard and our conveniences mm -hmm. all all part of an integration mm -hmm. now that's a nerd project if i've ever heard one <laughs> <laughs> yes yes so now that we all have not all because many of our listeners are in places that don't enjoy the frosty coatings of uh, northern climes mm -hmm. uh and uh, really guys girls don't miss them. Really, it's not that. <laughs> Do you like shovels and snow throwers? Do you like freezing? Do you like your toes not feeling like they're part of your foot anymore? <laughs> that can happen. You know, dealing with questions. And these turn out to be nerd questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to straighten the drive. That means extending the drive. Our current drive is concrete at the top and gravel at the bottom. Do you still want gravel? Do you want asphalt? Do you want concrete? And I said, there is nothing you can put there other than gravel that is inexpensive or low maintenance, they're all going to need coatings or replacement or, or some kind of repair. And I'd prefer being a cheapskate. Mm -hmm, and he mm -hmm. looked at me and I said, no, not for your work. <laughs> 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 We're getting rid of ground cover. Mm -hmm. You know, ground cover is just places for nasty stuff to hide. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, my, my dear wife is deadly afraid of snakes, and she saw a garter snake in there, and it was like, Martin, 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 Martin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> One of those moments. Mm -hmm. you, you probably haven't thought of this. This is an engineering challenge. On your front steps, yeah. should they be longer? Should they be, there be more of them so they're more shallow? Should you have 
more better support on the guardrails on the side? What if at some point you need to have a hip replaced? Mm -hmm, Is mm -hmm. it going to be hard to get up and down? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Going out to the back porch, do you trip on a rail? Could that be flush? Should it be a porch? Can you get rid of those screens and just make it kind of a roofed area that leads to a patio? What can you do with it? So I want to suggest, well, the snow's on the ground or isn't, depending on where mm -hmm, you live. Mm -hmm. Well, you have time to think about what it looks like out the window. And since you do leave the house every now and again, you get to think about what it looks like coming home again. Mm -hmm. You want that to be better. Do you want to make it easier on yourself? Do you want to make it prettier? Are you ever going to resell the house? Are you going to get that value back? So nerds make being a geek an outdoor sport. And that's my message. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a lot to this. I, you know, I think uh, there's, there's tech involved. I think uh, good companies I've noticed uh, these days are plotting out. And they're providing CAD drawings of of the improvements they're going to be doing on your three, three levels of CAD, not only the plot, which starts in 2D and right. figuring figuring out the levels of mud in the yard. But but then they can go in and they can show us exactly what the tree will look like. They can give us views to the outside from inside the house. Sure. Yeah. The, the, the CAD visualization is great on that subject. Unrelated. They have a new stage for Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. That is a, a 270 degree LED screen. So the things oh, they okay. used to have to do in CGI, sure, yeah. they can put on that background and it's like you're there and the lighting is like it were real. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. it, it probably cut a lot of time out of production, but and it had to be really expensive. But wow, what what a tour de force! Sure, yeah, that's a. It means no more going off to some weird remote location, often Alaska, for a thirty second throwaway. Yeah, amazing stuff. So now, Marty, you've been outside. Real quick, I, I've been yeah. trying to figure out what is that big, huge, bright thing up in the sky. I I I, I, I well, don't venture out often. I, I I don't know. We're in Cleveland. We don't get one here. <laughs> <laughs> As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Wins. Very good. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Tech Ed Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, January the 5th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, January the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number is 347-278-7320. New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. 
Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, January the 26th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is bcug.com. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week. And to all the listeners out there, season's greeting and Happy New Year.